Well, good morning. Welcome once again to our time of worship. Will you open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14, please? Last week, we finished Matthew 13, and uh, we saw that there was a final parable that Jesus gave, and that final parable was a parable of division, a parable about what was coming in the end. And as Jesus spoke to his disciples, he said, the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom that is coming, is like a dragnet, a dragnet that goes out and gathers fish of every kind. And at the end of the day, the fishermen come, and they sort the good fish from the bad. And he said, that is what it is going to be like at the end of the age. When the kingdom comes, when this great final division comes, the king is going to send his angels out and they are going to divide men and they will divide the good from the evil the wicked from the righteous and then he goes on and he really highlights in that last parable the the fact that to reject the king has eternal consequences that it is not just the separation of fish that we're concerned with here but that it is the separation of men and that the wicked for rejecting the king anticipate real punishment real separation real torment that is coming Uh, And that's a sobering thought. It's a sobering way to end these parables of the kingdom. And then almost as if to highlight the fact that division is coming, we're given these two little narrative sections that show us what that division looks like. The, The final division, the final separation, the final reckoning is yet future. But as we've moved through Matthew's gospel, really from chapter 10 onward, we've seen this division already start in how people respond to the Messiah. And we are shown the response of the disciples. Uh, Jesus asks them if they understand these things. And they say that they do. Of course, they don't understand perfectly. They don't understand fully. But they have a genuine understanding of what he said. He has taken their little understanding and he's added to it exactly as he said the parables would do. And he said they're going to be like things that they have no business being like. They're going to be like trained scribes and masters of the house. Those that are not wealthy and those that are not wise, at least by the world's standards, are now expected to be like scribes and wise masters of the house. Those with knowledge and understanding and those who have a treasure to share with others. Their treasure isn't wealth, of course. Their treasure is an understanding of the kingdom. And he says you're going to be able to take what's old and what's new. And what is old? Old is all of those things that the law and the prophets spoke about when it came to this Messiah, this promised and anointed one. Those things that were shadows and mysteries before that Christ has now made light of, that he is now uh, illuminated for them. They are going to be able to take those kingdom truths and share them with others. And they also have what's new. They have what is directly from the mouth of Messiah himself you have heard it said but I say you have seen what legalism looks like as men try to earn righteousness now let me tell you what it takes to enter the kingdom my kingdom but that's not the only response we also saw the response of rejection and it comes uh, from his own hometown the people hear him teach and they hear what he's done and as it comes to Nazareth they stumble over the Savior they're amazed but their amazement isn't the same as worship In fact, he's kind of a scandal among them. The question is, where does he get these things? And it's not astonishment. It's how dare he talk like this? After all, we know him. We know his father. We know what he did. We know his mother. We know his brothers. We could tell you where his sisters continue to live. He is simply one of us. This man couldn't possibly be who he claims to be. And they stumble over the Savior. And in their familiarity, they reject the only one who can actually save them. And so today, as we move into chapter 14, we're going to see once again how the righteous, even one uh, like John the Baptist, the promised forerunner of the Messiah, 
is going to suffer for the sake of the truth. If you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 14, and I'll read a portion of the passage that will be our text today. Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's Word says. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before your word today, we're struck with a contrast, a contrast between what is temporary and what is sinful, all that the world recognizes in her kings and what is true and right and valuable, and that is who the King of Kings is. Lord, as we read this narrative, and maybe even as we hear a familiar story, uh, let it fall on our hearts in a way that's new, not that there's new information, but that we're brought once again to amazement at who you are and what you've done, that we're seeing once again who Christ is. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Our sin entangles us, our sin blinds us, our sin darkens us. So, Lord, we need you even to open our eyes so that we might see. And so we come and we ask for your help. In Christ's name, amen. Now, not too long ago, we celebrated Easter Sunday together. And the week before Easter Sunday is Palm Sunday. And you came to church and you had certain expectations. And you saw the front of the bulletin and there were palm fronds on there. And you had certain expectations. And then we opened Matthew chapter 13, and you weren't sure how to function with those expectations. And I got questions. Why didn't you do a Palm Sunday message? And I looked back just to make sure historically that I was okay. The last couple of years, we have indeed done a Palm Sunday message, and we will do them again in the future. Uh, The fact was, we're in Matthew. We're going to get to Palm Sunday. It might be next Palm Sunday, but it's in the text, and we'll get there. And so as we come to Mother's Day... I'm anticipating, well, what is the expectation here? And then I scheduled it out, and God, in His divine providence and glorious humor, has brought us to the passage that He has today, where a mother plays a central role in this narrative. And many of you will think very carefully before you ask me for a Mother's Day message again next year. And that is okay. Because really what we're highlighting today is not so much a mother and daughter relationship, although that is present in the text. What we are highlighting today is a tale of two kings. What we have here today are two very clear pictures. One, a picture of everything that is vile and wicked, everything that is rejecting of Christ, and everything that is righteous and good and holy. And as we come to this text, we're going to be introduced to a man named Herod, the epitome of a worldly fallen king. And we are going to hold that up against Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, and boy, it ought to make us long for the second over the first. So let's just go ahead and open up this passage uh, as we continue as Matthew's Gospel. And first, we're going to look at the picture of rejection, the picture of rejection that we see in all that Herod is and does. And as we begin chapter 14, we're introduced to a man named Herod who is many things. And the first thing that we have to recognize is that as we talk about Herod, we are talking about someone who is a petty king. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. 
Well, first of all, what time are we talking about? Remember, Matthew is not moving us in a strict chronological order. It's not necessarily this and then this and then this. Matthew is building thematically, and he certainly uses the narrative to do that. But when he talks about at this time, he's talking about at the time of, Ma- of uh, Jesus' ministry in Galilee. In his ministry in and around the Sea of Galilee, kind of centered on Capernaum, at that time, a man named Herod has heard of all that Jesus is doing. And if we're paying attention, we know that that's not the first time we've heard the name of Herod either. Way back in chapter 2, there was a king named Herod who heard about the birth of a new king of the Jews from wise men who came from the east. We remember that? And that Herod ordered that all the babies under two years of age in and around Bethlehem be killed. That man, back in chapter 2, was a man named Herod the Great. Herod the Great ruled over all of what we know as Palestine. He was one of the few people that Rome actually allowed to retain the title of king, although it was more ceremonial in that he was king over the Jewish people. Herod the Great had a significant amount of authority, especially in that area, but when Herod died, his territory didn't pass to one son, it passed to several of his sons. In the far south, that territory of Palestine is given to a man named Archelaus. The far north, above Galilee, was given to one of his sons named Philip. And right in the middle, in and around Galilee, that was given to a man named Herod, Herod Antipas, or here, a man that we know as Herod the Tetrarch. Tetrarch means ruler of a fourth part, but by this time, it's really just meaning that he rules over a portion of a greater whole. Why go through all of that? You need a flowchart for this. No. It's to understand that when we talk about Herod, and although he's referred to as a king here, he is not a king in the sense that we would think of a king. He is not a king who rules from Rome with absolute power. He is not even a king like his father who rules over this broad uh, portion of land. In fact, Herod never rightly had the title of king, at least not as Rome would recognize it. Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, this Herod in our chapter here desperately wants more authority than he has. And he desperately wants to cling to the limited authority that he does have. In fact, he's so conniving and so scheming and so uh, insecure in his rule that later on he will go and scheme against his brother and try to get uh, additional territories and he'll wind up being banished. And he'll die in exile with no real authority whatsoever. But when we come to this Herod, although we're going to use the word king, you have to understand that when we talk about Herod, we are talking about a limited, petty king at best. But not only is he a petty king, this Herod is a foolish king. He hears about all the things of Jesus, and look at what he says in verse 2. He said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead, and that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, this part of the narrative with Herod and John, what we also find in Mark chapter 6, and we find it again in Luke chapter 9. And so we're going to use some details from those accounts to fill things in. And in Luke's gospel, he, he tells us that Herod is actually hearing input from another, a number of different areas. Some of Herod's servants were coming to him saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Some of his servants were coming to him saying, uh, Elijah, the prophet of old, has come. Some of them were saying that some other one of the prophets of old had come back from the dead and was doing ministry. And so Herod is hearing all of this different input. He's hearing all of these different things, and the best answer that he can come up with, the one that he has to latch on to, is that John the Baptist has somehow been raised from the dead and is doing these things in and around Galilee. Now, he knows about John. 
He's familiar with John's ministry. He's very familiar with John's message, which is something that we'll get to in a bit. And in his guilt and in his fear and in his foolishness, this is the best answer that he can come up with. A desert preacher that I had killed has come back from the dead to torment me. It could not possibly be that this Jesus is the one that John kept talking about. It could not possibly be that this Jesus was a man with an authority unlike anything Herod had ever come into contact with. Uh, No, this had to be the ghost of one that he thought he had dealt with. That fear and that guilt bring that foolish conclusion. And now in the rest of uh, this passage, we're given kind of further detail on what that looks like and why he comes to that. As we move to verse 3 here, we're going to see that Herod is not only a feeble and foolish king, Herod is also an intensely wicked king. Look at verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Now that verse, you have to understand, takes us back in time. The chronology of this is going to be important, otherwise it's going to get a little confusing. See, at that time, right now, Herod hears of Jesus. At that time, kind of right now in the narrative, Herod assumes that this is John. And now this flashes us back to why he thinks it's John. In the past, we know that John has been arrested. In fact, we saw this in Matthew chapter 4. John has been arrested. But why? Well, because he dared to speak out against the evil actions of Herod. Herod says, it says, he seized John and he bound him and he put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And this is where you need to bring out that family organizational chart again and try to work through this because this family is twisted at best. Herod went after his brother's wife, his brother Philip's wife. I told you there was a Philip that ruled to the north of him. That woman's the only Philip in the family. Uh, Herod the Great had a number of children with a number of different women. And there was another Philip, and he lived in Rome, and he didn't rule about it, rule over anything. And it's really, it's hard for us to come to a dogmatic conclusion. This is probably Herodias, the wife of that Philip who lived in Rome, that Antipas met in one of his travels over there. But either way, the fact is that Herod lusted after his brother's wife, which is clearly prohibited in the law of God. And to add to that problem, Herod himself was already married. He was married to the daughter of a king from the south in the desert, and so he was content to abandon his wife and to pursue the wife of his brother. And it's very clear the way that Matthew writes this and the way that John says it. He says he put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. This is not Herod's new wife. This is not Herod's wife. This is still seen biblically as Philip's wife. That's why verse 4 tells us that John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now the grammar there implies that he kept on saying this. This was not a one-time thing. This was a consistent message of John. Herod, you cannot do this. Herod, this is not right. Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. And Herod, because he is a petty, insecure ruler, cannot have some wilderness prophets stirring up the people. Because by the way, the people don't like Herod either. He's not ruling over them as one of God's uh, appointed rulers. He's not even rightly called a Jew. He is certainly not right in how he is handling his marriage. Now there's the uh, potential for a riot if they're not careful. And not only do the Jewish people recognize that this is wrong, but even the world around it recognizes that this is twisted. That king whose daughter Herod got rid of so that he could marry Herodias, 
He didn't like it either. And he came up and he attacked a number of the cities there in Galilee. And Rome actually had to come over and bail Herod out and save him so that he could maintain his authority there. That's not the end of his wickedness. I'm going to skip verse 5 and I want you to go down to verse 6 for a moment. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. Now, we hear birthday and we think balloons and bouncy cancels, or at least I do. This is not that. In fact, the Jews don't even really celebrate birthdays, but the Romans do. And this isn't some innocent children's party with fun and kind of games. And, uh, this is a drunken, vile, gluttonous affair. And we're given kind of a glimpse of that just by that line uh, that the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. If you've ever seen things uh, like Fiddler on the Roof, you you know that the Jewish people have dancing built into their culture, uh, but it's kind of a communal thing. It's a group, it's joyful, and even in mourning, it's kind of a a group affair. Once again, this isn't that. Uh, This is an individual sensual and seductive thing and making it more uncomfortable is the fact that this is his niece this is the daughter of his brother and his brother's wife and making it more uncomfortable is the fact that this is not a woman this is a girl she is probably somewhere between 12 and 15 years old and she is dancing to provoke a very particular response among a group of drunken vulgar men Reading this ought to make us uncomfortable. That is built into the narrative that this is a highlight of the perversion and the wickedness of this man called Herod. But not only is he a wicked king, he's a fearful king. This is a man ruled by fear and cowardice. Now go back up to verse 5 with me. It says, and though he wanted to put him, that is John, to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. See, King Herod would have liked nothing more than to put John to death. He might have been uh, interesting when he was this wily desert preacher. He might have been uh, entertaining when he could interact with him one-on-one and kind of challenge his views and hear this man who is certainly fiery at best, but it is intolerable when he continues to poke at the fact that you are living in consistent sin. And it was all the more intolerable because the people would have agreed. Because not only is Herod in fear of the people, but remember, Herod lives in constant fear of Rome. This is not his territory to rule as he sees fit. When you are Rome and you rule over most of the known world, the thing that you prize the most in your various places of occupancy is peace. You need peace across the empire, and so you need uh, your local rulers to maintain that peace at all costs. And so what does Herod have here? Herod has a situation where there's a prophet among the people who could very easily incite them to rebellion in what he says. The problem is if he silences that prophet and he kills him, he risks rioting the people who held him to be a prophet. And so Herod is in a difficult situation because now he's living in fear of Rome and now he is also living in fear of the people. And he can't kill him and he can't ignore him because this petty kingdom, this earthly authority is all that he has. And so he has to keep it with everything that he has. And so in his fear, he's keeping John the Baptist locked in chains because he dared to speak the truth. And although he's wicked 
And although he's fearful, what we're going to see is that one sin compounds and leads to another. That is what sin does. Sin promises freedom. Uh, sin promises gratification of your desires. But sin always breeds more sin. It always grows and multiplies and pulls you further in and brings further torment for those who are kind of ensnared by it. And at this point, we see not only his fear, but we see that this is a tremendously prideful king. His niece comes in and dances before him and his dinner guests, and he is greatly and disgustingly pleased. And in a moment of foolish pride, he makes an absurd promise. Look at verse 7. It pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Mark's gospel says that he promised to give her up to half of his kingdom. Now pull back for a moment and realize that he had no authority to grant any of that. But Herod is going to talk big for the sake of his dinner guests. And in a moment fueled by foolish pride, he promises this young girl that she can have anything she asks for. And that brings us into a sinister plot that was no doubt already in place. Look at verse 8. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Behind the scenes, we have this wicked conniving, murderous mother. Herodias hated John. She hated everything that he stood for. She hated everything that he said. She hated the fact that this camel-haired, locust-eating preacher would dare to confront her on the man that she was with. And she sees an opportunity to get her coward of a husband to do what they both really wanted done in the first place. And like Jezebel used and manipulated the wicked king Ahab way back during the time of Elijah, now Herodias is going to use and manipulate the wicked king Herod, and Herod is stuck again. He has made a public promise to some important people. Mark's Gospel tells us that uh, there were nobles and military commanders and all the leading men of Galilee present at that party. Now, if you're Herod, you cannot afford to go back and lose face on this. And Herodias is wickedly smart. She tells her daughter to ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter here. By the way, some of you are just now looking at the front of your bulletins and putting two and two together. <laughs> we were to go to Mark's gospel. She says that she wants the head at once. In other words, she gives Herod no time to process this. There's no time to sober up. No time to reason through something that might work to please all the parties. No, Herod made a big boast, and she is going to hold him to every inch of that promise. In verse 9, And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. See, he knows he's in trouble, and he is immediately sorry. He is not sorry because of his sinful lifestyle. He is not sorry because he made a foolish promise. He is sorry because now he knows that he's trapped and he can't please everybody. At this point, something has got to give. She asked for the unthinkable and he is pride bound to deliver it. And once again, sin is compounded. His lust brought adultery. His prideful boasts bring a foolish promise. And his fear and his cowardice now bring murder. Verse 10 and he sent and he had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. 
because Herod lacks any moral courage or conviction, because he lacks any ability to distinguish right from wrong and to act on right from wrong, because he has no desire uh, to humbly admit that maybe he overpromised, the man who was the last of the Old Testament prophets, the man who prepared the way for the Messiah, the man who spoke the truth to the king, the man who was the one that Jesus would call the greatest man that ever was born, John the Baptist, dies alone in the darkness of a prison cell. No trial, no witnesses, this is simply murder. And his head is brought up and paraded around on a platter and given to the girl who brings it to her wicked mother. Like an enemy in battle that was conquered, they seek to humiliate the memory of this man who had done nothing but speak the truth. In verse 12, we see that his disciples come and they take the body and they bury it. They went and told Jesus. The same ones who had come to Jesus and asked if he was really the Messiah on behalf of John, their fears, their questions, their concerns must have been answered because now they go to the only place where they know to go and they go and they tell Jesus what had happened. That's a story fit for a tabloid magazine, isn't it? Lust, intrigue, murder, family dynamics. It's all those things that shock us when we see them play out in the movies, let alone in real life. But the thing is, this should not surprise us. This is what fallen men do. This is what pagan kings do. They follow their sinful desires. They pursue the lusts of their heart so that they can gratify self. And now I want to spend some time, although we've covered the narrative, I want to, I want to pull back for a moment. And I want to look at the contrast that I think this intentionally develops. Because in view of this picture of really what is pure evil, we're drawn back in and we see a picture of real righteousness. Where there's this picture of rejection in Herod, by everything that we've seen and heard of John and really of Jesus, we get this picture of what real righteousness looks like that stands even more brilliantly against this dark backdrop. So first I want to look at an example uh, of a faithful servant. See, John the Baptist does exactly what he is supposed to do. He does exactly what the angel who had promised his birth said he would do. He does exactly what the prophets said the forerunner of the Messiah would do. He goes out and he prepares the hearts of the people to meet their coming king. And he does this without flinching. When he's preaching to the crowds, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when the scribes and the Pharisees come, the men who are religiously powerful, the men who are very educated, the message doesn't change. It says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And when a petty, vile, wicked, earthly king dares to live in open opposition to God's law, he says, you cannot have her. No matter what the context was, no matter what the audience was, and no matter what the consequence was, John was faithful to do everything that he was called to do. He, he stands as this tremendous reminder for us that sometimes the reward for faithful service, sometimes the reward for obedience is rejection and death. And if we're paying attention, that should not surprise us. Because where did we go in Matthew chapter 10? As Jesus sends out His disciples to do ministry, what does He say? 
He says, they are going to bring you before governors and kings for my sake. He says, you are going to be hated by all for my sake. He said, they called the master of the house Beelzebul. How much more are they going to malign you? He says, don't be afraid. In that day, you'll be given the words to speak. He says, don't be afraid because the worst that they can do is kill the body. Instead, fear the one who has the authority over both the body and the soul. Way back in Matthew chapter 10, he gives that wonderful promise that whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. How is it that John can remain faithful in the face of a king who he knows can put him to death? How is it that John would live every day in that prison cell what was likely for the period of a year, not knowing whether that day would be the last day or not? because he knew that it would be better to obey than to compromise. He knew it was better to be faithful to the king and his commands than to try to cling to this life that is temporary at best anyway. And in the face of the most violent persecution of a servant of the king that we've seen to this point in Matthew's gospel, John is a remarkable example of faithfulness. Now what's been the theme of this whole gospel. What's been on the title slide to every slide that we've done, don't worry, I'll tell you, you don't have to pretend that you remember. Matthew's gospel is about the king and his kingdom. In this passage, we have seen what an earthly king looks like. And as we go through this and we've seen the nature of Herod, it ought to make us long for a different kind of king. And if we've been paying attention, we see now that Jesus is actually everything that Herod is not. See, not only do we have the picture of a faithful servant in John, here we have the picture of what the king of kings is like. And the first thing that we know about Herod is that he is wicked and vile and lustful, that he has given into every opportunity to gratify self. What do we know about the king of kings? Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to run back through Matthew's gospel to remind ourselves of how Jesus is different. And the first way that Jesus is different is that this is the righteous king. Herod gave in to every temptation. Herod was the slave to sin and self. This Jesus is very different. As we come to Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is led into the wilderness for the specific reason to be tempted by the tempter, to be tempted by Satan himself. And after 40 days of fasting, Satan comes and he appeals to his hunger. In verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But what does Jesus say? He answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. If the Father willed that the Son would know hunger, then the Son would know hunger rather than satisfy his own needs. Satan brings Jesus to the highest point in the temple. And in verse 6, he says to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. If you are who you say you are, then surely God won't let any harm come to you. But Jesus said, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The Son does in fact trust the promises of the Father, but He is not willing to test the Father. He will simply rest in what He has said. And Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, all the power and all the authority. 
And in verse 9, he says, All of these I will give to you if only you will fall down and worship me. I'll give it all to you. The nations will fall down before you. I'll give you the rule of all the peoples. And in fact, I'll give this all to you, and you can skip the cup and the cross that you know are coming. And all it'll cost you is worship of me. And Jesus says what? Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now is not the time. The Son will be glorified, but He will not do that one step out of the Father's plan. He will be obedient to the point of death, and even death on a cross, and we see that this King is unlike any other King. This King is a righteous King. What else do we see? Herod is torn between rumors and partial information, and Herod at best is foolish in his decisions. But when we come to Christ, not only do we see a righteous king in Jesus, we see a king who is perfectly wise. Flip over one page to Matthew chapter 5, and we're reminded as we come into the Sermon on the Mount that the people had heard the law taught for years and centuries, that the rabbis tried to put things together and build a system in where you could earn your own righteousness, and it was complicated, and you were wise by the number of scribes that you could quote in the number of layers that you could put into your own particular religious system. And what does Jesus say in verse 21? You have heard that it was said, but I say. And in verse 27, you have heard it said, but I say. And in verse 31, it was said, but I say. And in chapter 6, he says, this is how you give, and this is how you pray, and this is how you fast. And he says, and this is where your priority ought to be. And he says, this is why you should not fear. And in chapter 7, he says, this is how you come into the kingdom. And at the end of that great Sermon on the Mount, what do the people say? They are astonished. Because no one is taught like this. No one has spoken with this kind of authority, this kind of understanding. In fact, if you remember back to last week, even the people of Nazareth had to ask, where does this man get this kind of wisdom? This king is not some petty, foolish king who is limited by his own understanding. This is the king who is perfectly wise. What did we see from Herod? A petty king who wanted more control, more power, more authority, and was terrified of losing the limited power that he did have. What do we see from Jesus? In Jesus, we see the king who is infinitely powerful. Flip over to Matthew chapter 8. When he entered into Capernaum, in verse 5, a centurion came forward and appealed to him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And we know that Jesus says, I will go and I will heal him. But what what does that centurion say? He said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Simply say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go and he goes and another come and he comes. And to my servant, do this and he does it. In other words, I know what it looks like to have authority. And I recognize the authority that I have, that I see in you. And Jesus speaks and he's healed. In chapter 8, verse 23, Jesus gets into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee and a fearful storm comes up. And His disciples fear to the point that they think that they will perish. 
And what does Jesus do in verse 26? He said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And we see that this one has authority even over the created order itself. And immediately after that, they come to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they're approached by two madmen screaming from the hills naked with the remnants of chains on them because no one was powerful enough to bind them. And yet they fall at the feet of Jesus and he casts out a legion of demons. And we see that this one has authority over the powers of darkness. We come to Matthew chapter 9. And a man's friends lower their paralytic friend lying on a bed in front of Jesus. And when he lands at Jesus' feet, what does he say? Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes say, how dare he? He blasphemes. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. But Matthew 9, verse 4, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And we see that this one has the authority even to forgive sins. This Jesus has an authority unlike anything that Herod could have ever dreamed about. When we see Herod, we see a man who lives in constant fear. Fear of John, fear of the people, fear of Rome, fear of his wife. What do we see from Jesus? In Jesus, we see a king who is bold. In chapter 10, he calls his disciples to the work of the kingdom. And in chapter 10, verse 26, he tells them, don't be afraid. Although they bring you before rulers and authorities, although they threaten to kill you, don't be afraid. He says, you're precious to the Father. Turn over to chapter 12, and what do we see in Jesus' ministry? The religious leaders begin to challenge Jesus. They challenge him in the wheat fields. They challenge him in the synagogues. In Matthew 12, 14, it says, The Pharisees went out and conspired against him on how to destroy him, and Jesus is aware of this. And he knows. And as he casts out a demon, the religious elite say that he does it by the power of the ruler of the demons. And he doesn't flinch. He doesn't cower. He doesn't beg them to reconsider. He doesn't fight for his reputation. When they demand a sign, he doesn't give them one more sign, hoping that this will be the one that finally makes them like him, finally makes them approve of him, finally makes them understand that he is who he says he is. He simply says, you're not going to get another one. I am who I am, whether you believe it or not, whether you accept it or not. I am who I am. And the only sign that you'll get is the sign of Jonah the prophet. And he dares to say things like the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south are going to rise up in judgment against this generation. And later on, when the king comes to the garden, he prays that if it's possible that this cup might pass from him, but where does he stop? Not my will, but yours be done. And as he's brought before Pilate and as he is finally brought before Herod, the only time in his ministry... He's silent before his accusers. This is a king of tremendous boldness and conviction. 
Finally, in Herod, we see all the folly of foolish pride. A man who was determined not only to keep his power and his kingdom, but a man who wanted to keep his reputation before his guests. Well, what do we see from Jesus? The King of Kings. The Eternal One. The Word who was with God and was God from the beginning. The One before whom every knee and every tongue will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That One didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped at or held on to. That One promised His kingdom to the poor and to the peacemaker and to the persecuted. That one said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And then that great and high and exalted and worthy King says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the king who makes his father known to his people. This is a king who removes an unbearable burden and in its place offers rest. This is the king who is going to wash the dusty feet of his disciples, even the one who would betray him only hours before he goes to the cross. This is the king who is going to drink the full cup of God's wrath on behalf of those that he would call his own. This is the king that will go to a cross to save those who were at war against him. Matthew 14 opens with a powerful picture. We get a glimpse of what evil looks like and we are reminded that this is what the world is and this is what sin does. This is the best that the world can offer. Petty kings, petty politicians, petty rulers, desperate to cling to their own power, desperate to increase their own influence, desperate to satisfy their own desires. We get a glimpse of the reality of what Jesus said at the end of chapter 13. A prophet is not without honor except among his own people. As now the final Old Testament prophet, the greatest man that ever lived according to Jesus, John the Baptist, is put to death without honor in what the world would say is an utter failure of a ministry end. And yet he is one, as Hebrews chapter 11 says, that God would evaluate as men of whom the world is not worthy. As we see this evil and earthly king, we're reminded of the perfection of the king of kings. That same king who continues to call the weak and the weary into his glorious kingdom. So how do we live in light of a picture like this? First of all, we need to be reminded of a critical role. It might not have been the most traditional of Mother's Day sermons, if there is such a thing. But this story is a powerful reminder of the influence that a mother can have. In this chapter, a wicked woman full of hate, hate for the truth, 
hate for those who would speak the truth, enticed her daughter to lustful entertainment, and eventually a call for murder. And how often through the Bible are we given examples of how faithful women have impacted their family? Women like Naomi, who loved Ruth and drew her into the very family of the Messiah. Women like Hannah, who prayed for a child and then was faithful to her promise as she dedicates Samuel back to the service of the Lord. The woman that we read at the very beginning of the service of Psalm 31, who teaches wisely, lives faithfully, and whose children rise up and call her blessed. Women like Lois and Eunice in the New Testament, who nurtured and raised Timothy to be strong in the faith and how valuable he was in the ministry and the life of Paul. Ladies, your impact on your family and the family of faith in general cannot be overstated. The world will tell you that not only do you deserve it all, but you ought to demand to have it all. The career and the husband and the toys and the influence and children if you want and get around to it. You need to understand that in God's economy, you have been entrusted with the primary means of impacting the next generation for Christ. As you love and care for and influence your children with the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And to those of you who could not or did not have kids, those who have kids that are grown, um, those who have kids maybe that have wandered, this day can be painful. Please know that you still play a tremendous role in the family of faith here at Chapel City Church in whatever circle God has called you to. In his kindness and in his wisdom, God has placed us in a body of believers and given us unique gifts so that we might build one another up in the faith. There are families who still need your prayer. There are children who still need your love, who need your interaction. Uh, that might be the kids in the nursery that you hold. It might be the elementary kids who you just desperately attempt to keep in some semblance of order. It might be those middle school and high school kids that you walk through some of the most difficult questions of life as they transition from childhood into young adulthood. Uh, ladies, you all matter. And I think we could probably all go back in our minds and think of those faithful ladies who have been on our path that God has placed there. I think of my mom, I think of uh, Mrs. Dobbins, the first Sunday school teacher that I can remember who poured truth into my life and who is still my friend on Facebook. I think of my best friend's wife who, although she never had children, has taken uh, dozens and dozens of college students and made them like her own children as we did ministry together. It is tremendously encouraging and I want you to understand how truly thankful we are for you. Second, we need to be a people who continue to count the cost. We've already been told that discipleship will be costly. Jesus has already said in Matthew uh, that the one who doesn't take up his cross is not worthy of him. Christians, it is time to ask the difficult question of whether or not we are willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. In this country, in our culture, we have not had to give up much for the sake of the Christ the cost has really been minimal. In the years to come, I'm becoming more and more convinced that the only Christians and the only churches who will be comfortable are the ones that 
are content to look like the world. So the question is, what is obedience worth? What is the kingdom worth? Well, the parables just told us that it's worth giving everything up so that we might lay hold of it. Are we willing to lose the promotion or maybe even the job itself because integrity and obedience matters more? Are we willing for our kids to lose the spot on the travel baseball team because fellowship with God's people and instruction in His Word is valuable? Are we willing to lose friendships or even our freedoms because the kingdom matters more? This narrative reminds us that sometimes the reward for faithful service is opposition and persecution. And finally, this is a call to courage. And what I mean by that is I use that term reward intentionally. No one loves to suffer. No one looks for pain. The world doesn't do it. We don't do it either. But if we understand what Jesus has said in this gospel, we know that if and when persecution comes, it is infinitely worth it because the king is better. Because his kingdom is better. We know that Jesus Christ is able to reward so much more richly than the earth can. That he can offer so much more that is eternal than what the best the world can offer is something is temporary and perishable. And so while we don't look forward to persecution, we don't live in fear of it either. While we don't seek out trials, we understand that we can rejoice in our trials because we know that they make us more like the king and that they actually prepare us to meet him and spend eternity with him. So church, take courage. Whatever we suffer, and we will all suffer, but whatever we suffer... It's momentary light affliction. It is temporary and light pain when we hold it against the eternal and glorious inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. Our hope is a living hope. And so every day from now until He comes or until He calls us home in death, we anticipate that blessed hope. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for faithfully placing examples in Your Word. Examples of the folly of what the world would call power. A temporary king, desperate to cling to his power, caught up in his arrogance and his pride and his foolishness. Set against the backdrop of the King of Kings. The glorious Jesus Christ infinite in power, infinite in wisdom, perfect in righteousness, but humble and gentle, meek and lowly. And Lord, we anticipate the coming of the King of Kings. And until you come, Lord, make us faithful. Help us to live as wise stewards those who preach your word, those who live and walk as children of light, and those who anticipate and look forward to and rejoice in the hope of your coming again. How we praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.